You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Look, he interrupted, you had a beautiful friendship, maybe more than a friendship, and I envy you. In my place, my parents would hope the whole thing goes away or pray that their sons land on their feet soon enough. But I am not such a parent. In your place, if there is pain, nurse it. And if there is a flame, don't snuff it out. Don't be brutal with it. Withdrawal can be a terrible thing when it keeps us awake at night. And watching others forget us sooner than we'd want them to be forgotten is no better. We rip out so much of ourselves to be cured of things faster than we should, that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer each time we start with someone new. But to feel nothing so as not to feel anything? What a waste. Let me say one more thing. It will clear the air. I may have come close, but I never had what you had. Something always held me back or stood in the way. How you live your life is your business. But remember, our hearts and our bodies are given to us once only. Most of us can't help but live as though we've given two lives to live. One is the mock-up, the other the finished version, and then there are all those versions in between. But there's only one, and before you know it, your heart is worn out, and as for your body, there comes a point when no one looks at it, much less wants to come near it. Right now, there's sorrow. I don't envy you the pain but I envy you the pain. Andre Ossiman is the author of Out of Egypt, a memoir, Letters of Transit, Reflections on Exile, Identity, Language, and Loss. He was the editor of that book. He wrote False Papers, Essays on Exile and Memory. He was the author of Entree, Signs of France, and the editor of the Proust Project. His novel, Call Me By Your Name, has been adapted into an Oscar-nominated film. Thank you for joining me, Andre. Thank you for having me. You know, this book is steeped in two, one person's vision of another, and also, even more deeply, in how that person thinks the other person sees him. This is a vision of how we make models of the people in our lives, in our own minds, to guide our own actions, no matter how flawed those models may be. They're always flawed. We never understand other people. There are small, tiny sort of eruptions of sort of intimacy that occur between people, moments when they totally are... complete sync with each other but that doesn't always last and it goes away Um, I think that I was particularly interested in this book and how Elio a young man views himself and the people around him and the underpinning idea is that he does not trust anything or anyone even those he loves and who love him He does not trust even himself because he doesn't know himself and every time he looks inside he finds that there's a weird little corner where he didn't suspect there was X or Y awaiting him to be found out. The prose and the voice in this novel is so strong it's 
instant immersion in the easiest reading I've almost ever encountered in a novel. Talk about developing the voice of your main character. Um, it's, it's a first-person narrator to begin with, mm -hmm. and he's insecure, and he is hungry. And he does, occasionally he will simply let out a sort of primal, what you, in Yiddish is the geshrai of pain, desire, whatever, shame, call it whatever you want. But there's, there are these momentary sort of explosions. But by and large, he is constantly looking for, and I as the author am looking for it as well, a particular kind of cadence in the sentence so that it will make sense, at least for the time being, until a new piece of information comes up that will disrupt it or prove it wrong. You capture the flow of thought. Your sentences are long and, and flowing. Is this a deliberate decision, or did this happen? Um, was this a decision, I'm going to write long sentences because this reflects how I think, or does this just happen as you're sitting down in front of your word creation station? Well, this is how I do write. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like to write short sentences. Um, I say this of Proust as well. Whenever he writes a very, very short, lapidary sentence, it's totally with a purpose. In other words, he wants to be, he wants it to strike you in the face. And I do the same thing. My sentences are longish because I think any kind of internal exploration of our desires or excavation of our desires forces us to hold off putting the period at the end of the sentence. Wow, you, you keep, exactly. You keep putting commas because there's, oh my God, there's also this. Yes, but then there can be that. And so you don't want to stop because if you stop, you artificially block the, the very progress of introspection. Your characters are filled with contradictions and they embrace these contradictions even though they fight them at the same time. Talk about the importance of contradiction within the characters and also in the society writ at large. I think that um, there's a moment in the book, just to sort of give you a formal example of it, when he wishes that Oliver dies or that he wants him to have an accident so that he could be paralyzed and then he would basically have him for the rest of his life on a wheelchair, okay? Because if those are the terms in which I can have you for the rest of my life, then I'll take those terms. Uh, and basically, you don't wish the person that you love dead. Uh, it's the last thing you want. But if you can't have them, then I want them dead. <laughs> and it's, it's at the level of this totally, totally, it's not even contradictory, it's a paradox of desire. Exactly. It's, it's, and uh, that's why people kill the people that they love when they can't have them. Um, and I wanted to go there and to push the narrative in that direction because I do think that whenever we are consistent with ourselves, we're lying to ourselves. So when we are inconsistent and we catch ourselves being inconsistent and we're upset that we are, then at that point, I think we are coming close to what identity really is. Who am I? I'm a, just a, a bunch of knots that will never get sorted out. Uh, I think that, uh, on the other hand, what's really interesting, this is a novel about, I think, the extremes of intimacy as seen from within one side of that intimate relationship. And what's interesting is, is that even though these two people are intimate, they are as close as two humans could be, we never really 
feel to a certain extent that we get past the facade of, of Oliver. There's always some incredible mystery there. There's always the potential for change, for contradiction. And I think that's a really powerful vision, both of intimacy and of ultimately isolation. Yes, because the whole book is, is written from the point of view of a boy who's grown up by himself. His parents adore him and he adores them. Uh, and he's loved by everybody around him. So it's not somebody who's hated. Uh, but he's solitary and he reads a lot and he does, he transcribes music by himself all day long. This is what he does. He's a solitary human being. And suddenly into his life walks in this person that he has to have. He needs to not just sleep with him, he needs to become one with him. Mm -hmm. He wants to be him, he wants to have him. And he can't even decide, do I want to be him? Or, do I, or in other words, do I envy who he is and I want to be just like him? Or do I want to be... I just want to have him for myself. And that the being and having are, I think, the irreducible sort of lowest point, not in our lives, but it's, it's the, you can't reduce between being and having. There's nothing after that. Those are the two terms <laughs> with which we battle every single day. And, uh, and either you want something or you want to be something. Um, and I think that's the, those are the two points that Elio, the character, uh, is constantly struggling with. He, d he doesn't know if he just wants him to sleep with him or he wants to become him. He can't, reduce, he can't decide. And I think that's the definition of love, which is a word I don't use in the book. One of the things you describe Elio's uh, situation and the, the situation in this book in general, it's a happy. Yes. I mean, this is a place where people are comfortable, nobody's struggling, and I think what you do really well is to take a situation that where there is no struggle and to s imbue it with such humanity that we see the struggle that we're all in constantly, just trying to be human. And I think that th this ability to um, evoke the thrilling excitement of a basically comfortable life and the constant terror of a basically constant comfortable life is amazing and it's really fun to read because we like that he's comfortable. We're comfortable. We're happy in this place. Yeah. No, I think the, the place is ideal. It's paradise. It's utopia. It is. It's a utopian novel. Uh -huh. At the same time, this, this land called Utopia, this wonderful house, beautiful garden, uh, in the novel there are tennis courts, and in the, the, the movie there is a volleyball court, there are friends, everybody's happy. And yet at the inside, and inside of Elio there is this torment, this troubling feeling that um, I'm in love, I'm, I desire this person, how do I get to tell him? Do I even, can I be bold enough to tell him? And it's the agony of desire, the agony of ultimately of love, of course. And it's painful. But the, 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 the end of the film and of the novel basically take you to the, those two terms as well. On one hand, you're totally enchanted because there's something enchanting about their relationship. It doesn't make you sad. And yet at the same time, everybody who's read the book or seen the film, or almost everybody, cries. And then they write to me and they say, I hate you, Andre. <laughs> and they say, but I, I love you, okay? Uh, basically because um, the enchantment component never goes away it stays there and it is sort of mixed in with this 
agony of, of, of desire and of love and of loss. And so what you've done is your readers begin, may begin the book in a neutral state, but by bearing witness to the internalized state of your characters who are both happy and stable and, right. and living a good life, but also simultaneously torn and filled with angst. The, the, you are creating the same feelings in your reader towards you <laughs> that your <laughs> well, characters feel uh, almost towards one another. And I think that's interesting. I mean, you, you are, in a sense, wooing your readers. I, I, I think I am, but, but essentially the, the, the one thing that I never expected, I knew people would be moved, I mm -hmm. knew that, and I, but I didn't expect them to be this moved. What I didn't expect is that the, they would all say to me, and when they come to readings they always say it, this book has changed me. Now, if you're 70 years old and you're changed, it's not the same thing as if you're 14 or 13 <laughs> years old and you're changed, okay? Exactly. In other words, how does a book change you? What does it give you or take away from you? Um, that That's interesting, the idea that a book could both give and take away something from you because a book like this strips away yes, your illusions it does. about yourself. Yes. It, it, it may, you cannot be, and this is what you are so successful at, we become I, 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 uh, Elio. Elio. Yeah, we do become Elio because he's essentially he's a trap door that allows us to get into him and then we see ourselves. A lot of people will say, this book takes me back to my adolescence when I too had a crisis of the sort and I never said anything and we never did anything and now we're both married and we're happily with children and, and yet if I were to see him again I don't know what I would feel. That's what they say to me. Or there's the other, the other hand, which is, I I became him, and it told me who I was, and what what it does do, if I can just say that without any any arrogance or self-adulation, it's the 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 sense that this book is giving you a not a map, but a not even a chronology, but it's giving you a space in which you say. Everything that's in this book, I know. I've not said anything in the book that you didn't already know, that you hadn't experienced. You know all these things, but nobody has put them together. Nobody has formulated or, or articulated them to a point where you say, my God, I've been knowing this for the past 50 years, and yet I'm reading this book, and there it is. There it is. For the very first time, yeah. I'm 55 years old, I'm reading this book, and now I finally see who I am. You know, uh, it, it strikes me, too, that um, when you were saying that your, your uh, characters, your readers get to know themselves, I think that, that this, the reason this happens is because we have all our own formless thoughts and feelings, and they are right. floating in us nebulously, and, and we... You know, studiously, if we're in a kind of loving mood, we try to ignore the the non-loving emotions right, right, right. and otherwise around. So we we have different things. We're flitting back and forth between different poles, and it's hard for us to put it together. What your book does is use the narrative elements of story and storytelling to take those disparate elements 
in the character and right. weave them into a story so that we can see them better woven together. And, and you use the storytelling aspect of, of the novel to help us see ourselves better and reconcile ourselves better. We're reconciled in your story. I think so. I think so. And that's why I use the word chronology and maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't have. No, it, it, it's it, a perfect it, word. Yeah, it is. It gives you, it takes all this chaos of emotions and kind of lines it up a tiny bit uh-huh. so that now you have a narrative of these emotions. And they don't necessarily have to come in that order, in the order in which I gave it. But essentially it's that. When Elio goes into Oliver's bedroom and finds his bathing suit, and in the novel he wears it, okay, and smells it, okay, um, that could happen at the beginning of the novel. It could happen in the middle of the novel. You don't know when it could happen. But it had to happen at some point. And there are many instances like that. that There's no particular order in which these things have to occur, but they do have to to occur and and they basically are a source of confusion his dreams when he fantasizes that Oliver is in his room now and Oliver is not in the room Uh, I mean things of that nature they're so um, they're so accurate because it happens to us even for a split second to believe that the person we desire so much is finally in our bed and we haven't even spoken to that person in our life (laughs) but now they're in our bed for a few seconds. I think that the, your ability to, to write well of, of the matters of the body, this is incredibly difficult. There are so many contests for bad sex. Yes, yes, I know. I mean, and, it, and generally, to be honest, it makes me cringe. I, your stuff doesn't, and I think that... And yet it's pretty graphic. It's very graphic, yeah, and I think you do a really good job of that. It's that you have a kind of, I guess, a casual approach to this. I, and, in a, and to a certain extent, it's a casual approach that um, runs through the novel. And it's that the voice of your character who, who is there, but he doesn't seem to like have a prejudging anything. He no, just lets it happen to him. Nobody judges any. Nobody. I don't think we may fight our instincts. We may be angry that we have them, but we go with them. We don't. We don't stall them. Exactly. I don't think we do, and I think that's visible in the behavior of the parents, mm-hmm. who are clearly sort of involved in in the development of their son, and they're not going to hamper him in any way. Certainly not the father. We don't know about the mother. In the movie, the mother is equally sort of um, understanding what's happened to her son. But in my the novel, she's sort of incidental almost. Uh, talk about uh, creating the the overall arching plot arc. When, when you... Okay started writing the book, did you know where you were going to end up or did you just start, find yourself lost in the voice? I was lost in the voice. I did not want to, I mean, I wrote the book because I didn't mean to write the book. It It almost seems (laughs) It was not my intention to write this book. I was just dabbling with a house in Italy and there are guests in the house in Italy and I wanted to be one of those because I wanted to be in Italy that summer. (laughs) And so I invented this house, and sure enough, there was a little spark that came up, and there's Marcia, the girl, and I could have gone that way. But then I, I, I felt sort of lured by the presence of this Oliver. I said, there's something's going to happen here. And I had no idea what. 
at some point, as I like to say in public, I thought I was going to get rid of Oliver by either having him go back to the States because his father is sick, mm -hmm. and that would have cleansed up the whole thing, right. or I would have had him drown in an incident with the fisherman, mm -hmm. um, which, so I, 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 I didn't want to do the sex thing, but eventually I said, no, they have to kiss, at least they have to kiss, and then I moved and said, if they kiss, then they have to do the rest. How are they going to do the rest? What is going to, what is it going to be like to have sex? you know between them for the first time for Elio with a man what's it going to be like because mm -hmm. he's he's eager he goes knocking at his window okay yeah exactly uh, uh, and so I needed to get as I didn't want to be brutally frank but I wasn't going to be cagey and and so there was a very fine line to to go there and then and I named the parts of the body I didn't give mm -hmm. them sort of polite nicknames like <laughs> Okay, uh, I just, I needed to do that. And I think that, I mean, I even described the fact that one is penetrated by the other. That's fine. Uh, and, and I even described the fact that the shirt is now dirty, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, these things, I, I wanted to do that. Um, because otherwise, there's no point in writing a novel of that kind without going into those very, uh, not incidental details. They're not incidental. They're very, they're very important. They're psychological markers. Uh, yes. Markers. And yeah. that's what's very interesting. We experience them as much as uh, psychological markers and journey and part of the, his journey in how he sees things, both himself and Oliver and the rest of his right. world, not just um, the next uh, physical plot point in, no, in the book. No, no, no. I mean, and I, I want to, I mean, there's an emotional component here. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that. Elio realized uh, that he was going to be so sorry that he had sex the next morning. <laughs> and he was, he was like, oh my God, what did I do? I got to get away from him. And, and then I decided, yes, that's how one feels. Sometimes after we've had sex with someone, we say, what the hell was I thinking? And how do I get out of here at two o'clock? in the morning yeah uh, and uh well, now we have to sleep together oh god but then in the morning i'm not sleeping <laughs> you can't sleep no, you, you you're counting the hours uh but eventually there was that moment when he is kind of trying to be distant like leave me alone and then he takes his bike and he goes and meets him in in the piazza uh -huh. at which point oliver says to him do you have any idea how happy i am that you're here um, and so I wanted, and of course, they are in love, more in love than they know. Uh, that's important, uh, what you just said, more in love than they, they know. know. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, a big component of this book is the way Elio gets to know both others and then by getting to know them, learns something about himself. It, it's easier to learn something about yourself when you see it demonstrated outside of yourself than to suss it when it happens to right, you within right, you. And right. I think that's really some of the more powerful scenes in the book are, are where that happens. Well, I wanted, I mean, there's that whole Roman expedition mm -hmm. which was cut out of the movie, and justifiably so. But in, in the novel, that was going to be like a day of their being together in a foreign city where they don't necessarily have the parents watching over them and where they can explore a new place mm -hmm. and therefore a new selves in that new place. Exactly, exactly. And, and so they, and they, they have this, it's, it's a honeymoon. Uh, and it's a wonderful honeymoon. Honeymoons are usually the worst part of a marriage. 
but they are very happy. One thing I like most about this book is your exploration of sexuality. There's, it just happens to, to them, which I think is so important. It just, it just happens. It's not something that uh, is thought about. It's not programmed. Yeah. We don't believe it. We don't feel as part. It's just, it happens as a result of intimacy. And I think that's a really powerful statement in this book. I think so, and I like the idea that. Um, um, sometimes the people that I've desired the most in my whole life, mm-hmm. um, I didn't know I desired them until I dreamt of them. Uh-huh. In other words, my subconscious had to tell me because otherwise <laughs> there was no way I was going to know. And there was this particular girl who was in one of my classes and I thought she was stupid. Until, but then suddenly one night I just dreamt of her naked in my bed and I said, oh my God, this is really how I feel about her. And when I saw her the next day in class, I said, that's true. It is. There is something between me and her. And, uh, of course, I didn't do anything. But, uh, but it, it was revealing to me. In other words, and sometimes... Was you know, it somebody, revealing to you that you didn't do anything also? Uh, no, because I'm a very polite... Uh, I'm, I'm a very professional person. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know what goes on in the mind of teachers is one thing, <laughs> but it stays in the mind of the teachers. That's it should good. not go out, and uh, I, I, th- I totally subscribe to that. But there are essentially, you know, you're you're in a place, and somebody just by sheer accident puts a hand on your shoulder, uh-huh. and then you and you react. You could say, "Oh, this hand on my shoulder, I'm being touched." Okay, this is annoying, or suddenly you find yourself that before you even thought about it, you leaned into the person. Or the person so leaned into you. And you say, oh my God, what is happening? You try to be rational. You try to, for, of course, you know, you try to fend it off. And then you say, no, I don't want to fend this off. This is nice. I didn't know this is how I felt. And that's just because the hand came on my shoulder. Uh, I think that one of the most important aspects of this book and most enjoyable for me was how the way it explores this idea of how we don't know ourselves yes. very well because Elio does not know himself very well and the fact that we don't know ourselves well should clue us in that maybe we're not getting the other people around us <laughs> with a great deal of accuracy well, we as know, well. Well, we know that. We do know that we don't understand other people. We should assume that they don't understand us, we don't understand us, and therefore how could we pretend to even understand them when we haven't even gotten into their brains? Um, I, I go with that assumption all the time and, mm-hmm. and because I don't understand people. And yet I have wonderful friends who tell me things, tell me lots of things. Um, and, and, but then I go home, I say things like, oh, that was really disgusting, you know? Uh, because you judge people too. This is the other thing that we do. We judge ourselves. Oh, which is yeah. called shame, you know, when you say, how could I have said this? How could I have done this? How could I have asked this person for their phone number? <laughs> you know, uh, that's the component of shame. But we also judge other people, and I'm constantly judging people. So, yes, I am judgmental. I don't accept people as they want to be accepted. I just pass my own judgment. And I'll change my judgment. I mean, I'll, I will change my judgment on a composer that I hated, and then suddenly I find, you know, that's not so bad. Okay let's change our mind 
we can change exactly. we can be fluid in that respect which of course brings us to the other question that always comes up the question of sexual identity mm-hmm. i don't believe that we have one identity no it's clear in this we book we have at least four as the san clemente syndrome is supposed to suggest that there are four layers to us or many more we'll talk about those four layers what are what are they and and how, how do they what? interact well, the book was written in four layers. I mean, it really is. Uh-huh. That's right. There's four parts. Eh? Four parts, and exactly. it's it's very architecturally. It's 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 very it's almost sacrosanct because there's a part of me that is also a good teacher. So I, I say, okay, I'm going to have four of this. The encounter, for example, in in Thailand, mm-hmm. the man meets a woman who looks like a man, who turns out to be a man, who turns out to be a woman, really, who turns out to be a man again. There are four layers there. There's four layers of everything in this novel. Um, and it's intentional, it's not accidental. Um, and there's the, the question of, you know, when you do the traviamento, which is when you take, you deviate from life's course. There are people who deviate and come back. There are people who never deviate and therefore may be actually leaving, leading a deviant life because they haven't <laughs> they deviated. They never found the real yeah, one. Yeah, they haven't found the real one. So, I mean, you have, but you have four layers there too. You have four layers of everything. But the question of identity troubles me a bit because um, I could never say that some person, one person is bi, one person is totally gay, one person is totally straight. Um, I don't understand that. That, that is spectrum. A, it is totally spectrum. And I think, uh, and of course I quote in the book, not obviously, but I do raise the issue, and people have noticed it, of you know, Plato's Symposium, which is, of course, the ultimate gay story mm-hmm. ever written in <laughs> antiquity. Uh, but it is also about how we are haves of something or sometimes and if we don't watch it we'll be quartered <laughs> that's what you know what's his name Aristophanes says in the play he's a comedian so he says and then we'll only have one leg we used to have four legs now we have two and, and if we don't behave we'll have one but the idea that you go through life with one identity and are want to have it's like having one religion one one background one ethnicity one nationality one of anything is, is for me coming from where I come from, Alexandria, which is pluri-everything, is, is almost taboo. That's the real taboo, is to be just one thing. You know, that's, uh, so, that's so interesting because we all strive for consistency, yes, which we... We, we have to because we have one profession. Right. <laughs> but it's impossible. We, we, are, we can't be consistent because we are internally inconsistent. Totally I, true. I and that's something that um, I think Elio, uh, uh, you know, he, he really recognizes that and goes back and forth. And I think it's so interesting to see the struggles uh, of... On Elio's part? Yeah. Oh, I think so. I think so. But he's also... I mean... He is. He has one advantage. He has. Mm-hmm. He is patrician, or sort of a form of patrician. He's rich. He's oh, not yeah. poor. He lives in a beautiful house. He lives in a beautiful country. It's, and he has everything he wants. Let's say, uh, all the amenities are in place: the good food, the good wine, the good everything, the good life. Uh, and yet he struggles, because somehow this is not sufficient. And I, I don't think those are sufficient components of a good life in the slightest. What he's looking for is what he had that one summer. And people always ask me, what happens afterwards? What is he? Does he become totally gay? And I say, I don't know. 
because how could I know? How could anyone know if he's totally gay or totally straight? Is, is Oliver straight? Is Oliver not straight? We don't know, and I don't want to know. You know, and I think, too, to a certain extent, the way it's written in the book, it's, it's so powerful. It does not matter what their sexuality I is. I agree. What really matters is where, they, where their intimacy lies, where they are able to be intimate. Because some people may be very intimate psychologically or with friends, but never be intimate sexually. And some people can be very intimate sexually and have and nothing have to say to each other. <laughs> nothing, nothing to say to each other. Well, and, and that's to And what's interesting is, is that Elio and Oliver are both. They're both because, they, and, and of course, they both have this high culture component to their lives. Mm-hmm. So, and but they do say something at some point. Says, you know, we were we were friends first. This was basically they are good friends, mm-hmm. excellent friends, and at the same time, excellent lovers. And isn't that the definition of the perfect perfect relationship, where you're not just friends but also lovers? And but that it's something that can't happen consistently through time. It's not like they're going oh. to move. Do you think that can happen for consistently? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I like to make the joke, you know. Um, there's something that's called domesticity, and we all know what that is. Mm-hmm. Basically, it, it's a form of intimacy. It's polite intimacy. <laughs> it's, it's domesticity when you're basically you're married for a few years. You, on Sundays, on Saturday night... <clears throat> You might have sex, but maybe you'll watch TV instead. And on Sunday, you do the laundry and you fold towels. That sounds familiar. <laughs> of course it sounds It's what everybody does. Uh-huh. You know, straight couples, gay couples, that's what you end up doing. You're domestic. Mm-hmm. And I think that what they have, Elio and Oliver, is something that is outside the pale of domesticity altogether. Because they never have a chance to ruin the relationship with domesticity. Uh, that's an interesting... No, I'm exaggerating, of <laughs> course. But <laughs> Oliver is a wonderful, wonderful character, right? He's wonderful because of the way we encounter him through Elio. Talk about creating a character who will be central to your narrative, but never the center of the narrative. Yeah. Uh, Oliver is... I wanted a character who can, who's extremely, is, is a font of energy, the kind of energy that um, Elio does not have. Mm-hmm. He is, he befriends people right away. He sleeps around. It is clear that he sleeps around in the town and not just with one girl. He, you know, he, when he walks into the bar with Elio, <laughs> he knows everybody already and they all adore him. He is the ultimate American the, the, the guy who is comfortable with himself, who likes himself, who, is, who never even considers the fact that he might be somebody else. He is, he's, he's okay. He is fine with himself. I love that. I, no, I love that about him because he is so centered, mm-hmm. which is something I could not understand, which is why there are moments when Oliver may seem almost two-dimensional. Because he, uh, exactly. he, he doesn't have the luxury of introspection because he's not writing the book. Exactly. But also because he, what attracts Elliot to him is precisely the fact that he is entirely, as far as he's concerned, a total physical being. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, with a brain because he's writing on Heraclitus, who's one of the most difficult philosophers around. But and he jogs and he does. And he's he's confident. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty. And Elio is the last thing he is is confident. 
Well, also, Oliver is sort of opaque. Yes. I, I mean, he will exhibit, when he's exhibiting, and my feeling is, when I, as I read the book, I feel that when he's exhibiting an emotion, that's the only thing you understand about him is in the minute. It's not like you look at him and say, he's happy now, but at some other point in his life he was sad, blah, 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 blah. No, you... Oliver forces you to deal with him in, in the present. In the present, yeah. exactly. And forces Elio to deal with not only Oliver in the present, but also Elio in the present, yeah. which is not easy for us. Well, it's not, but remember there's that scene in the movie as well and in the book where Elio is writing a note to mm-hmm. Oliver. He's going to drop the note in the, on his desk, put uh-huh. it on his desk, and he basically scribbles how many of them, like 20 versions of that note. All he's t- saying, you know, I'd love to see you. Please don't be nasty to me. And what does he get back? Grow up. I'll see you at midnight. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost the equivalent of that talismanic sentence, later. You know, it, it's like, that's, that's, that's all you need to say. Just one thing. Grow up, see you at midnight. It, it's so almost, it's not brutal. It's close to it, though. I yeah. mean, it, it's brutal, but direct and yes. and in its directness it assume it acquires a an affection because you are comfortable to be so yeah. direct with but your you, you get to like him too as a reader you um, like Oliver oh yeah you can't you, you can't he's fight fun. him you can't <laughs> fight him off no no he's, he's there he's, he's invasive he mm-hmm. basically the kitchen likes him the the, the gardener <laughs> likes him everybody loves him um, and the mother loves him. And basically, and there was in the book, there's a little girl. Mm-hmm. And she's dying of some form of cancer. And she and he get along almost without saying anything to each other. They love each other, he, uh, Oliver and the little girl. And that's an interesting insight into Oliver. Right. That we see children? that. Well, no, that, that he has that kind of ability to connect with somebody who is on the surface so different to him. Yes. And when we see that, we understand that even when he is being steely and kind of awful to Elio, we understand that he has this other side too, that Oliver has this other side too, that Elio may not see. He may not be able to wrap his brain around ever. He can't. I mean, remember that scene when he puts his arm on him when they're playing volleyball and he gives him a kind of chummy, chummy massage? Oh, yeah. And later he says, well, I gave you a sign. That was a sign. I don't think it was a sign. It was just a friendly tap on the shoulder that... Because it was so meaningful to Elio, he had to shirk away from it and therefore suggest by implication that uh, he was being molested, as if he was being molested, which made Oliver feel uneasy. But I don't think it was a move. It's not the kind of thing that Oliver would do if he's making a pass at somebody's just rub his shoulder. No, no, no. And I think that it's interesting to see those places where we are, are given to understand that people can achieve a level of intimacy that is extremely powerful, consuming, almost right. frightening, yet still not grok the other person, <laughs> yet still not grok who the other person actually is. I'm not get that kind of gestalt understanding of the person. I don't know. I, I think that there's a moment when they're on the rock together uh-huh. uh, in the novel where they finally realize that what they have is 
probably the best, the most special thing either one has ever experienced and might ever experience. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment when they actually have sex where it says that he has never before or after experienced. Uh, in other words, there was something very special about Oliver per se. Right, right. Well, we, we experience those, but I think, uh, and, and we're able to, because we're reading the novel, we're able to take that thought and take it back to the beginning of yeah. the novel and take it all the way to the end. Elio, he just gets it in that moment, and, and it's only yeah. in the retrospect of writing, telling the story. And I think that's the, the thing that makes us book again so well, powerful is the storytelling it is storytelling but i don't think he writes with the wisdom of hindsight uh, i didn't want that in mm -hmm. other words he's no, remembering it's it's he's happening. remembering but as he's remembering he is as blind in the details <laughs> as he was back then well, we all are we well <laughs> we are but, but it's, it's, i didn't want the kind of narrator who let me tell you how it was back then right and then sort of go on a journey into time and therefore explain to you but back I didn't when i know. was a feckless yeah. youth yeah. no yes. there's no back when i was a feckless no. youth really that never happened <laughs> oh, he is he is an eternal feckless youth but I hope he so yeah. So is Oliver, and so are all of us, which is one of the gifts of this book. I think so. I'm always asked the question, um, how could I, in my 50s at the time, write from the perspective of a 17-year-old person? And, and my answer is always the same. Is that the sexuality of a 17-year-old and the sexuality of an 80-year-old are no different. We are libidinally, our heads are libidinally inscribed in such a way that we desire other people men are perpetual adolescents yes. i guarantee that uh, exactly, there, there's exactly. no there's so it doesn't i keep getting accused of being a teenager and i can tell you <laughs> i ain't no teenager <laughs> well we all we, we are none of us as, as a teenager but we can we don't have to do any effort to transpose ourselves into our 14, 16 years old. Oh, no. It's, it, it's instant. It's like it's the button. There's only one button, right? Right. And, and that's the button we press. And, and I enjoyed pressing it. Uh, I enjoyed pressing that button, sort of. Uh, and Well, you do it so effortlessly. We don't, I mean, this book feels like it was written by Elio. Yeah. I mean, it really, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I really do hope that that's a feeling that people have. That Because... Many of the incidents sort of are cobbled together from my life, but they're not necessarily the story of Elio and Oliver. On the other hand, I, I don't know why I say this, but it is true. It is, it's as if writing made things truer than they were in real life. That's what happens when you write as well oh, as I don't you know. as do you. <laughs> now, you've had that fortunate experience so rare in humankind to see your work of art recreated in a completely different format. And one of the things that's interesting is that um, when we look at uh, an adaptation of a book or a movie, we think like to think, well, they just kind of use the movie as a book as a template for the movie, but that's not the case. And I think one of the things that I really liked, I thought they did did, your director did an amazing job at bringing this to life. Talk about, you know, your experience of seeing your characters brought to life. Well, it's, 
I, I, the only word I can use is mir miraculous because there you've, you've created this thing on what is known as West 109th Street in Manhattan, <laughs> in New York, on a hot <laughs> summer day. And suddenly this thing that was in your head and wasn't completely out of your head um, suddenly got to paper and then it, somebody else made a f picture of it with human beings moving around and kissing each other and sleeping together. So you, you have to say to yourself, um, this thing that was only in my head and then on paper and then finally is now on screen, it's, it's almost a, it feels as if something is embodied that never had a body before. And I'm, I'm extremely sort of um, pleased by this whole experience. On the other hand, one of the things that the director did, which is why he's a genius, um, is that the book is extremely, I'd hate the word to, uh, to call it stream of conscious, consciousness. It's more like a, an internal excavation of one's identity. And the, the book does that. And if you're going to do that in, in film, it's going to be extremely difficult. You can't do that in film because you need a voiceover. Right. So failing the voiceover, you have to do quite a few things and two come to mind. One is the actors have to basically portray on their faces everything that is happening in their heads so that the audience knows what's going on. In mm -hmm. other words, he hesitant? Is he happy that he was touched on the shoulder? Or is he shirking it away right. because he feels drawn to it? These are things that a good actor can suggest. The second thing that, uh, that Luca Guadagnino did, which I thought was brilliant, people tell me that they do cry when they get to the end of my novel. They mm -hmm. do cry. Oh, yeah. And I will join them. Okay, fine. I, <laughs> so it's, I, but it's wonderful. And, and, but the fact is that you couldn't have that ending in the film because it's written in the conditional mood, which you cannot film because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's the conditional mood. It's not the present tense. It's not the past tense. It's not the future. It doesn't exist. Exactly. It's in his head. So what he did is he tried to convey to the audience the emotional intensity of that imagined farewell scene with Oliver at the very last pages of the book and try to do something as moving by having Elio stare into the fireplace. That is, it performed the same function of basically tearing you up, up as, as an audience so that you would say, my God, why am I so moved? I don't know why I'm so moved. And the same thing happens at the end of the book. You are moved and you don't know why you're moved because part of you is very happy with the book. <laughs> which is something that I'm, I, I'm assuming this because that's what people tell me. Uh, I have no ability to judge my own work at this point. Well, you know, I, one thing you were talking about just now that I really liked about the book was this idea of the conditional because one of the things we're always doing, even as we sit in any situation, we are imagining the variation of that situation yes. oh, where God. some, you know, some, this is, what if this were happening right now? Oh no, maybe I better pay attention to what's really happening. Right, but right. it's so easy to get distracted by the conditionals in our lives. They're there, they're, I think our lives are made of, any shrink will say this, our lives is probably 90% fantasy. Uh -huh. And that's conditional, couldn't be more conditional than fantasy because because it's all, it's either imagined, remembered, or fantasized. It's those three. Those three sort of woven together are my whole life. No, I, I, I would say that actually, <laughs> you know, what you 
uh, when you put it that way, I actually I'd say that most of what we consider to be imag uh, imagined or remembered is really just fantasized. Yes, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> especially what we remember. <laughs> What we remember, of course, people will tell you, and our wives are champions of this. That's not at all how it happens. <laughs> you fool. Okay, I'm sorry, I misremembered. But yes, it's all fantasy. And we are, I mean, we're lucky to have the fantasies we have. Uh, because our lives would be barren if it was just uh, nuts and bolts and here and now and drummy, drummy, drummy things. Um, we're lucky to have fantasies, but also fantasies are the sources of our pain because it's what we want and do not have. The new novel by Andrea Asaman is Call Me By Your Name. Thank you for joining me, Andre. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.